This is Privacy Matters, the data protection podcast from Be Secure. Welcome to Privacy Matters, a series of podcasts brought to you by Be Secure in association with Channel 103. We're talking about data protection in the real world, what it means for you, your rights, and your business. And we'll consider what's likely to happen in the world of data protection over the next five to 10 years. In each episode, we'll be focusing on one aspect of data protection today, mining the knowledge of our expert Brian Siney from Be Secure, which is a niche consultancy business providing professional services to clients here in the Channel Islands, the UK, and across the European Union. Brian has more than 25 years of experience of both commercial and financial services businesses in Jersey. And importantly, he's the only person in the Channel Islands to have the three IAPP accreditations. Brian, welcome. And what does that mean? Why is the IAPP accreditation so important? The IAPP stands for the International Association of Privacy Professionals. It is the global body who represent all of the privacy professionals, data protection consultants, those working in commercial businesses and in consultancy. The three qualifications that I have, the first one is the CIPPE, which is the law, understanding the European data protection law. The second one is CIPM, which is privacy in management, putting privacy programs into businesses. And the third one, which is always the hardest one, CIPT. So that is the technology, privacy in technology. The combination of all three is very, very beneficial to have. In recent times, it's felt like data protection has never been far away from the headlines. It must be an exciting world to be a part of at the moment. It really is. If you're looking for a career that is full of change and very interesting activities that are happening at the moment, data protection is certainly the space to be in. There is so much going on in this space. It's very difficult to keep up to date. It's very, very exciting what's happening at the moment. Now, some big stories from around the world that I think we'll come on to in a moment. But closer to home, what's happening in the world of data protection here in Jersey? The first thing we'll start off with is the very good news that our local man, Paul Vane, he is taking over the role of the commissioner here in the Jersey office. And Dr. Jay Frederick, who is from Canada, is retiring at the end of June and is returning to Canada. So we wish Paul great success in his role. And it's not to be underestimated, the role. Jersey being an international regulated financial services sector, looking after all our banks and trust companies. And if you think about data protection, it's extending into the government space, it's extending into the medical, e-commerce and all our businesses. But Jersey, with that truly global business, that recognition as being the financial services centre in the top 10 in the world, he certainly has a role to play in making sure that we keep our reputation intact in a very challenging environment. When it comes to data protection and Jersey and our relationship with the European Union, the EU, we already have what's called adequacy for our data protection rules. What, What does that mean in layman's terms? Effectively, the EU are saying and looking at our laws and saying that they are equivalent to the rights and the freedoms and the powers that are within the EU legislation. In other words, Jersey is able to enact its data protection laws to achieve the same result as the European Union would expect. And within that, there are only a small number of countries that have the adequacy status, Jersey, Guernsey, the Isle of Man being some of them. Two very important ones came on recently, which is Japan was uh, given the adequacy status recently. So that's a huge story. The next big one is South Korea is being re-examined for its status. So it's expanding all the time. 
The key thing on why it matters for Jersey and its relationship to the UK is that the UK at the moment is still within the transition provisions of Brexit. And what that meant was the transition period came to an end at the end of December of last year. But when it came to data protection, the EU allowed a four-month extension with a further two-month extension. So in theory, it's till the end of June that we have this extended transition period. And we are expecting to hear whether the UK gets adequacy decision in the next two or three weeks. The key thing about the adequacy decision is that the EU, if it gives the adequacy decision, will then say it is okay to allow data to be transferred from Europe into the UK and that the UK laws will deliver the results that it expects from the data protection legislation in the UK. There are some challenges around the law enforcement and about immigration concerns about the use of the data between government departments, which is being closely scrutinised by the EU Commission and Parliament at the moment. But we are expecting to see the UK get the EU adequacy status, which would then allow the free flow of information to and from the UK and Europe, which is really, really important. If it does not get the adequacy status, it does create some difficulty for businesses because they will need to make sure that they have what's called the standard contractual clause framework in place to allow data to flow freely. There's been a lot of work done on this in the second half of last year, but I think we're all anticipating and hoping for that adequacy status to come through to remove any obstacles for businesses, certainly since post-COVID-19 with all of the restrictions and disturbance last year, we were looking for some good news going forward. One of the other big stories from the world of data protection in, in recent weeks is the, the ongoing Supreme Court case in the UK between Richard Lloyd and Google. Google, obviously a, a huge processor of our data. They know a huge amount of, uh, about us. In a nutshell, what is this case all about? This is a massive case. It's a case that's based around uh, Richard Lloyd, who is a privacy activist, brought representative actions case against Google for the illegal tracking of data, personal data of people. And the case is based on one fundamental principle is, does the UK law allow class actions and representative actions to go forward? And what that means is, Today, we have what's known as GLOs, Group Litigation Orders. In other words, if you look at BA, if you look at Marriott Hotels, in order to claim compensation for distress or financial loss, it means that the members of the public have to opt in, join a claim, which is usually done by claims management companies or law firms, a bit like the PPI insurance claims that you may be more familiar with. And I'm sure we've all seen the adverts on social media. Have you driven this make of motor car? Exactly. And And you see them at the moment. So they're called group litigation where law firms or claims management companies ask you to opt in to join those cases. Richard Lloyd's case is very, very different. It's about you're automatically enrolled in the class action, you need to opt out. And that's very, very different. For the citizen, it's probably very good in the sense that with Facebook's recent breaches, that if you're a Facebook user, you will automatically join a class action, should this status or this type of claim be allowed by the Supreme Court. What's really, really interesting about the debate in the Supreme Court is you are entitled to compensation if there's distress and financial loss. If it's a class action, some key questions are very fundamental which are being debated, is if me and you, James, were part of that class action, do we suffer the same loss? You might suffer more distress than I do. I might have more 
financial loss than you might have. So there's key questions around whether people who join a class action, number one, have the shared experience, the shared loss and distress. And it's a key point that's being debated, and there are lots of other points being debated by the Supreme Court. But should that be allowed to move forward as a class action? It potentially will give citizens greater rights, but it obviously will create some difficulties for businesses. So it's a fascinating case. The last of the hearings were at the end of April. It will probably take a couple of months for the Supreme Court to make the final decision on that. But this is groundbreaking if it goes ahead. It's going to create very much like a US-style class actions going forward. So it's really, really interesting. You're listening to Privacy Matters, the podcast series exploring the world of data protection and privacy, powered by Be Secure. Speaking of the United States, what's the link between queues of petrol stations and data protection? What an amazing story that was. Colonial Pipeline. It's actually the longest pipeline in the US. It goes all the way from New Jersey down to Houston in Texas. It's a, a company obviously supplying gas to all of the petrol stations in the US. It's a business that's very digital in its operations. So the actual mechanics of the flow of fuel is actually all digitalized and is connected to the head office systems. And what happened here was, through I believe it was a phishing attack, it affected the administrative systems, which then had an ongoing impact on the operational side of things, which meant that the supply of fuel to the fuel stations was interrupted for over a week, which resulted in huge queues at the petrol stations, as you've mentioned. But not only that, there's a bigger picture to it in the sense that it caused nervousness within the market. It led to price increases in fuel, and obviously it took a long time for them to investigate and try to get out of that particular problem. But what's interesting about it is that the bosses chose to pay the ransom of $4.4 million. And it depends whether you believe that that's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. For companies who face this type of issue, it's a very difficult choice. Your business has ground to a halt. The longer it continues, the damage to your reputation, to your business. And in this case, could you imagine the stakeholders putting pressure on the business to say we cannot have oil prices increasing because of a cybersecurity risk? So that's why when you read lots of articles around that particular story, it's fascinating to see that one cybersecurity hack can impact on the fuel distribution of a country and increase oil prices. And can also have an impact on a country's uh, health service we saw recently in Ireland. What a, a very difficult case for Ireland. The Prime Minister, or the Taoiseach of Ireland, he said in the recent commentary about this over the last week that it was a national security crisis. It had that big impact on the effect of the running of the health department in Ireland. The ongoing situation of whether it was contained or not contained and it was so bad that appointments and operations were cancelled. About 80% of these operations were cancelled. The uh, hackers provided the decryption code free of charge to the government. One would say, weren't they very charitable? But I don't think we would agree with that. It's much bigger. So if you think about of all the departments in a government, the health department is the most sensitive one. One would really ask, what was the modus operandi of the hackers picking a health department to, to attack? Was it for the publicity? Was it for the money? They had asked for $20 million in ransom to be paid. 
you know, so one would wonder what, why did they do that? Why did they pick on the health department? So the Irish government said, no, we're not going to spend any money paying the ransom and that we were going to try and sort this out using other means. The interesting thing with the Irish government is that they got um, an order from the court forcing all the social media companies not to publish any more information about certain aspects of this case. And they got the cooperation from the big social media companies to try and help them to deal with the situation. Could you imagine the uh, pressures to manage the PR, the fallout from this as well? But also, if you think about it from a citizen perspective, it's quite scary. So to manage that fear factor within the government and within the public is quite an important thing as well. And what's happening to my personal health data? Where will it end up? Correct. And it was reported in, in, I think it was the Financial Times, that there was a threat to publish that into the dark web. And could you imagine, you know, the fear of that? And there was threats to publish the data, which was around procurement. It was around the minutes of different management meetings. But they also obviously had patients' data, and that is the real risk. When a hack like this happens, it means that the organization has lost control of the data. Even though it's in their servers, it's encrypted. They cannot get to it. They cannot use it. They cannot transfer it. And that, when we look later on in the series about what does a data breach mean, the definition is very wide. If you've lost control of somebody's data, you're causing a data breach. We will also talk later in the series about What does high risks to the rights and freedoms of citizens mean? And if you're in a situation that causes high risks to the rights and freedoms of citizens, you're in the top tier for any fines, for the responsibilities as data controller. And it could be no more high risk than special category data, which is your health records. So that's why this case in particular, if you look at the commentary around this from not only lawyers, but people working in this sector, the expectation of litigation following the government from this is going to be very, very interesting to find out. Because if you were that patient waiting for that urgent surgery last week and you couldn't get it, and you've had not only distress, but should there be something more fundamental that would go wrong, then you can imagine what options are open to the patients. And potentially very costly for the Irish government. Absolutely. And I would just share one other story, which was in Finland going back a couple of years ago. They also, uh, one of the medical businesses over there was hacked. And it said that 40,000 patients' records were affected by the cybersecurity attack. What was interesting about this case was that once the incident was dealt with, the hackers maintained a copy of the records and contacted each data subject privately and requested a 200 euro payment in bitcoins not to release the data. Now, why is that an interesting case? Because all you hear at the moment is governments or businesses dealing with it. You don't hear until this case in Finland where the hacker contacted the individuals directly and threatened them with a ransom request. So that's quite scary. And whether it was the Irish case or not, one could imagine that if that starts to happen, and it has been reported recently in the Irish papers, they expect that there will be lots of fraud and scam for the next decade because they still have access and copies of the data. And they're warning citizens to be very vigilant over the next couple of years that their information is not going to be used against them. So you could imagine how scary that is for the citizens. This is Privacy Matters, the data protection podcast series from Be Secure, the Channel Islands experts in data protection, advice and services. 
Just touching briefly on Air India. A cybersecurity attack on the data service, which affected 4.5 million customers around the world. It affected details around people's passports, ticket information and credit card. So it's, it's very, very detailed information. And they reckon that the breach of the networks could have been there going back 10 years. It is wide open to all sorts of possibilities as to what would happen. Just been a slow sort of seep of information over a decade. Exactly. So the difficulty with cybersecurity incidents like this is that when do you identify them? They could have been in your systems for a long time. They are the invisible robber. They are the invisible attacker. And that's why not only from a technology perspective side of things, it's very, very important data protection as the business secures the data, but for people to understand that even in your home environment, on your laptop, on the games that your children are using, that all of the security stories you hear about, it does have an impact on you personally. It's very important to be aware of those risks. Are there any particular lessons for companies, say, here in Jersey, that we can learn from these big data breaches in the likes of America and and Ireland? What can I be doing to ensure that I don't fall victim to something similar here? The Jersey Office of the Information Commissioner, they provide very good guidance in very much a layman's language to explain to people who run businesses or even your family uh, situation at home, if you've got your private laptops, if you're working from home, they provide very good guidance as to what you need to do. There's some very basic things that you need to do, updating your antivirus, dual factor authentication, which means that when you log in, you need more than just one way of logging in. You need the security of maybe having a text message which give you a special code to log into your PC. Having VPN networks when you're using so very secure ways of connecting to the internet that you're not using a public Wi-Fi system if you're using private data. The other thing is also making sure that your laptop is secure, that you're not putting company data sitting on your laptop, you're not using USB sticks. There are those type of practices that a lot of companies are are obviously putting in during the COVID-19 when we're working from home. But just for people to be aware, it's not just a work thing, it's also a home thing that they need to be very aware of. And I also have just some some cases just to show you um, how practical this is. In the UK, I'm, I'm just referring to a UK law firm website here who's provided some examples of data breaches and how they're assisting people to claim. So shall I share some of them for you here? Please do. So Bupa was fined 175000 for failing to have effective security measures in place to protect customers' personal data. Another one, where a GP practice was fined £40,000 after it was re- revealed that confidential data about a woman and her family were given to her estranged ex-partner. Another one, just to be able to share with you, Basilton Borough Council was fined £150,000 for publishing sensitive personal data about a family, which was outside of their practice and protocol. Or the MP who was fined £5,000 for making nuisance calls. So it's it's quite wide-ranging in the cases of data protection. But you can imagine that if you're on the receiving end of a data breach and you were the person who was the victim, I often use the phrase that when it's your and your family's private data, it gets personal. And it's very scary when that happens to you, to feel that, you know, somebody, it's, it's a bit like somebody breaking into your house. It, you know, you don't feel secure in your house anymore. 
This is Privacy Matters, the data protection and privacy podcast with Brian Sione. But also for the, the business, or in that case, the, the MP concerned, the reputational damage is huge as well. Absolutely. So you can appreciate how difficult it is for any business, because the reality is it's only a matter of time when we will all experience this. It's a really impossible thing to imagine that whether you're all, all your staff were trained, that you will defend and protect the business 100% of the time. A hacker only needs to get in once. And once they're in there, they can sit on your systems and they can attack your systems at their timing and at their will. And I think for lots of businesses, it's quite difficult because you can do all the right things. You can invest in all the systems, you can do all the training, you can do all of the correct compliance, and you can be certainly positioning yourself as being very secure. But the reality is, it can happen. When it does happen, do you have an incident response plan? Do you know what to do next? And a lot of my work is to come in and help with the training, but also to sit down with senior bosses and, and the directors to say, when this stuff happens, do you have your guide? Who is going to refer you to the incident response plan? And we've dealt with three situations in the last year in particular. If I share with you, the first one was a file went missing. It's easy to see the file is gone. Everyone understands the file is missing, there is a breach. The question is, what happened to it? Where did it go? In that example, it got posted out by mail to the wrong company. They were very lucky that it ended up with, let's call them a trusted party, a regulated business that knows the right thing to do. If that file had ended up with a garage in Wales or in Ireland and the recipient of that did bad things with that data, you can imagine how exposed people would be. The second one is very different. How do you know somebody's not in your server at the moment? So when it's something intangible, that's the scary part because you don't know today if you're 100% secure or not. Certainly there are a lot of systems out there that monitor and give you those early alerts. But the question for businesses is, if something happened, do you have a guide that your staff can immediately respond to, that management can respond to? If you do not have a guide, I can tell you it's a showstopper. Work stops because of the panic to try and work out where did it happen? What's the consequences? Who do we call? And do we need to report the data breach? So it's very, very important to have thought those through and actually implement some training exercises to deal with those situations. And the important thing also for businesses is do your staff understand what a breach is? Because the definition is very, very wide. So good training, understanding about data breaches and to be able to understand when to report to the commissioner is quite important. And I would say to you that certainly dealing with the Jersey regulator, they are a very, very helpful bunch of people down there. They're there to help you and to be able to protect the information, to be able to protect the citizens. And in the last year, I've dealt with three investigations. Some are to do with customer complaints. So they're dealt with internally in the business. And two were to do with actually reporting and investigations from the Office of the Information Commissioner. What I would share with you is when you go through this process, it takes a long time. It's not wrapped up in six hours. It's not wrapped up in six weeks. It can go on for months. It can go on for six months. And the last one I dealt with, it did take six months from start to finish. And that's because you're going back and forth with the regulator, with queries and follow-up investigation points but you're also dealing with customers 
and you're also dealing with the business itself. It may not have done all the things it needs to do. So for somebody to call on you to say, can you help with a data breach or help with a complaint? The first thing I do is explain to a business, this is not a quick win. You must appreciate that you have or have not done the things you're meant to do. What do you need to remediate all of that? And how do you move forward with dealing with the regulator? So they're very key things that we deal with. But certainly businesses are very thankful that they can pick up a phone to somebody and say, can you come immediately and help me? Because I really don't know what to do. And I think there's a a misunderstanding within business is that it's a bit like the old data protection law. There wasn't any real fines. It wasn't really complicated. But they don't appreciate in this new world, things are different. If I use just one example, is that you as the company, you need to prove you're compliant, not the other way around. So the business needs to prove to the regulator that they're compliant. And that puts a huge onus on businesses to make sure that they're up to speed. I was just going to draw on one example of this, which is the recent case about BA and Marriott Hotel. So this is a really amazing case. Do you recall back in July of 2019, the ICO in the UK had filed a notice of intent to fine BA £183 million. And that was equivalent to 1.5% of BA's annual global turnover. So this is, let's say, within a year, 18 months of the new GDPR law coming in. GDPR allowed for the fine to be up to 4% of the global revenues. So the initial notice of intent was to fine BA 183 million, 1.5. What happened with that fine? So what happened with that fine is that that fine was reduced in July of 2020, 20 million pounds. And the reason for that is really, really very interesting. The regulator said that all fines should be effective, proportionate and dissuasive, and that they have the ability to fine up to 4% of the global annual revenues. So they start with £183 million. And here is the reason why the regulator reduced that fine all the way down to £24 million to begin with. And then they give them a £4 million reduction because of COVID-19. So here's what's very important for businesses to understand, is that if you are facing the prospect of having a fine, here is some of the guidance from the ICO as to why they reduced the fine so much. They considered the remedial measures and representations that both BA and the Marriott Hotel did as part of their work around the data breach, and that they had cooperated in full with the ICO investigation. They promptly notified each of the data subjects and the appropriate regulatory authorities. The breaches had a significant impact on brand and reputation. They'd created damage for themselves effectively. And the other point they raised was that neither BA nor the Marriott received any financial gain as a result of the breach. And when they picked up on the Marriott, they said they acted quickly to mitigate the risk of damage suffered by the customers in deploying real-time monitoring and forensic tools. So this is where I was saying there are systems out there to be able to do that. And implementing password resets, disabling known compromised accounts and implementing enhanced detection tools. So just to recap, it is quite scary as a business when you're dealing with the regulator. Nobody wants the embarrassment of the story to be publicized, number one. If it is a very serious breach, of course you need to inform your clients. That's a very difficult threshold to cross over. Businesses will try and not do that, obviously for the obvious reasons, 
But actually, when it's so significant and the regulator says it is significant, you must inform the data subjects, then you're automatically in that zone of the negative impact on your brand and reputation. And what do you do as a business to recover that? It's this intangible thing called trust. And when it's lost, it's very difficult to get back. Very difficult. And in those examples, the ICO is saying that there is the possibility to reduce those fines or the certainly indicated fines. And that is a massive reduction, 90% reduction in the BA fine and the Marriott. I suppose the question would be, if COVID never happened, if we roll it back to 2019, where GDPR had just come in, the excitement of the enforcement of GDPR, will they issue the big fines? So in this example, they use 1.5% instead of 4%. Still a big fine. It could have been substantially higher. And if you think about where we were in 2019 to where we are today, where businesses are obviously impacted and might even go bankrupt because of COVID-19, the question is, when you enforce data protection law, you have to do it softly, softly. There's no point bankrupting BA. Very interesting, isn't it, to see the implementation of the data protection laws. What does that actually mean in the context of the environment and the economy that you're working in? Now, you mentioned GDPR, and of course, we're celebrating the what, third anniversary this year. Yes, so the law itself is five years old, but it came into force three years ago today. And with great excitement and publicity around the fines in particular. Um, and just to give you a little snapshot and a little quiz, James, if I may then, um, what would you think were the nations with the highest fines? Which ones do you think had, in money values, had the highest fines, if I was to ask you that? Well, if you put me on the spot, what would I, you think? The I, top three. Top three, uh, Germany. Number three, very good, at 49 million euros. Somewhere like France. Very good. Are you able to see my page? I'm, I'm not. No, I was just thinking of the, the size of the economies. And, uh, it is. That came in at 54.6 million euros. Of course, most of that was the Google fine that they issued for 50 million. And number one is Italy at 76 million euros in fines. So the UK doesn't appear in the top 10. So it was Italy, France, Germany. I beg your pardon. Number four was the United Kingdom with 44 million and then Spain. And then if you look at those nations and say in volume terms, in the number of tickets or fines, Spain came in at 222 fines. Italy was 74, Romania 54, Hungary was 39, and the UK doesn't appear in that top 10. So basically in the UK you had fewer fines, bigger values, and it could have been far bigger if COVID wasn't here and if those discounts were not applied to the fines from the UK. Incidentally, in Jersey, just bringing it back locally, the work of the Office of the Information Commissioner would be, did we have any fines? Do we see any fines from Jersey's implementation of the law? So we've not seen any fines yet. There have been reprimands and there have been public statements. And you probably refer to, remember the one we were referring to is the CSS Limited one, where they had quite a public company. It had quite a big impact locally. Um, again, they had a sanction. So how would you describe that in, in Jersey's context of implementing data protection versus what we see across Europe and in the UK? Um, and that's not to say that we're softly, softly at all. 
What's very interesting is to look at the change in the commissioner. So we'll have uh, Mr. Paul Vane coming in in, in uh, July. We see a change in the guard over in the UK. So Elizabeth Denham, she's from Canada. She is uh, due to retire at the end of July, but that was extended. Her period of time was extended to the end of October and she will be retiring. So both Jay and Elizabeth Denham are from uh, Canada and they're retiring. And then you have new commissioners. So question number one, will new commissioners bring a new attitude to implementing the law? Will they be more strict in its compliance and will, they, will we see more fines coming through? It's going to be really, really fascinating to see what happens. And again, with all of the excitement of the data breaches in the last couple of weeks and in the last couple of years, as we see post-GDPR implementation, it's important to measure and benchmark where Jersey is in the global scene of data protection. So it's a very exciting space. Let's see what happens. I'm sure locally Paul Vane will be announcing his strategy for managing data protection and what we can expect going forward, which should be awesome. Should be fantastic. It's going to be an exciting time in the world of data protection. Brian Siney for now from Be Secure. Thank you for spending time talking about the world of data protection. And if you're in business in Jersey or elsewhere, I hope you've found this as interesting and helpful as I have. If you'd like more information and advice on data protection, uh, do head to besecure-consultants.com and you can listen to other podcasts in this series, Privacy Matters, via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or of course the Channel 103 website, channel103.com. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Listen to other episodes of Privacy Matters wherever you get your podcasts. And for expert advice on data protection and privacy, visit besecure-consultants.com.